throughout the news this week. It's hard to miss that there have been many uh, hours and hours of broadcast of crowds. These crowds are uh, signifying a protest. I won't get into the issues of that. I'm careful here on Sunday mornings not to to delve too deeply. I don't think this is the particular place to do that. But part of the story is that there are many crowds in many cities around the United States. There's a fragility now, I believe, in our country. It's It's been there. It surfaces from time to time. There's tension in every country around the world, to be honest with you. And we're no different from that. But the story is attractive as you watch on the TV, so to speak. In other words, let me let me say that another way. They, the news broadcasters, they attract our attention because there are crowds. If there were only 10 people walking down a Brooklyn street with, a, with some placards, we'd say, well, pr- probably not newsworthy. And we understand that the news channels, that their job is to, to attract us with their stories. They use hot words, they'll say that dozens showed up, and you know, it could have been two dozen, but dozens sounds something that would draw you in. But this week, there have been thousands. And because of that, our attention is is drawn to it because the power of a crowd. And we're going to talk about that today, and, and, and how a crowd affects, the, the mentality of a crowd affects our our, our spiritual life. I was thinking about watching all these crowds and and the power of a crowd and it just got me exploring a little bit this week about different crowds and and how they gather and the power that they have. And so I I just brought some visuals uh, to you this morning. For example, this first one is from China. And every year in China, there's a crowd that crosses a bridge. Now, see, this wouldn't be a story if there were just 10 people crossing the bridge. But because people are so packed in, they believe in that culture that when you cross this bridge, it brings healing. It brings some emotional, spiritual, intellectual healing. But the fact that many people are jammed in, it draws our attention because we're drawn to crowds. There's sometimes that, that crowds are, are fun and they, they, in a sports event like this Clemson game. They're, they're, it causes you to wear the same color and, and unify and have a, sol- a solidarity, except, that, of course, the, the lady in the front who's wearing a purple wig. I'm not sure what that's all about. But there's a power in that. When you see a football game, I don't, I don't know if they still turn the placards up, you know, and it spells a name and all that. It's so cool because there's this like, ah, oh, man, it's all orange or it's all red, it's all gold, it's all blue, it's whatever. And there's a, when you look at it, you think, ah, oh, that, that crowd has a sense of power. There are other times that uh, when you look at, at uh, things like this, say, oh, there, there's, a, that, there's a crowd. I relate to this. I lived in Boston. And uh, when you went to uh, catch the subway, people weren't necessarily sitting on the top of the train. But uh, there were times that looked just like this, especially around the holidays. When I went home for Christmas, there are times where you, you know, you're carrying, you're the odd guy out carrying luggage. That really works well in that scenario. And you literally just put your luggage in and it, you just watch people helping you out and your luggage is kind of, and then you try to squeeze in and hope you and the luggage are in the same train. Because when we look at that, we think, gosh, that looks like a lot of energy and a lot of power. 
There are times that there are fun times, like here's a a shot from the Philippines. Now, that doesn't look fun to me, to be honest with you, but uh, that's how you have fun at the beach and and, uh, there in the Philippines. And so um, I'm just afraid I'm going to hit somebody in the face with an inner tube, and then it's all going to break loose in a fight. But anyway, that that looks like they're, they're... they're having fun. So, uh, but it's, it, it's attractive. Again, if there were just a few people there with an inner tube, you're like a big deal. But what draws our attention is like, wow, there's a lot of people there and they're jammed in. Sometimes there's somber reasons why a crowd is joined in this iconic photo of JFK's funeral. It's not only that the event, the actual story of a president being assassinated is grave enough, but it's the fact that the nation came together as a crowd and we mourned together. And there was a power. There's a power in these photos that you look at and like, wow, everybody came out. I remember being four years old when JFK, and I don't remember a lot when I was four years old, but I, I remember my, my mom watching the TV. I remember her weeping at the, at the ironing board because the nation it was different then. We grieved together, and you see this. It's, it happens in other countries like Great Britain. They, on, in Great Britain, every year in November on the 11th month, on the 11th day at the 11th hour, 11 o'clock on November 11, every, every year they stop wherever they're at because they remember the First World War ending, 1918, and, and uh, how it, it was in, the, the armistice was engaged at that moment on the 11th uh, hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And I look at this and it's impressive because there's a crowd who says, no matter if we're businessmen, if we're on an escalator, if we're on a back, we stop. I'm, re- I'm reminded of this picture of Tiananmen Square. And they, each year they come out and they, they each hold a candle and you say, wow, what, what a sight. But not quite as a, a sight as when you pull back and see the aerial. See, it's the crowd that makes us go, wow. That's amazing. There are movements that, that, that is powerful because there's a crowd. You remember this iconic, this iconic picture of, uh, of a, a day in August in the 60s where Martin Luther King Jr. came to speak his I have a dream speech. And see, the news media, they weren't for this movement, some of them, uh, in this time. And they tried to discourage Martin Luther King and, and his, and his, and his team. They said, not many people are going to show up. Probably maybe 10,000 at the most. I mean, it's in August and it's hot. The morning started that day at 87 degrees. A quarter of a million people came that day and stood there all day long. It wasn't just the story of a civil rights leader. It was a story of a crowd. There's some crowds that get crazy. I, I, one time I went to a U2 concert. I'm like, I'll never do... I went with people that are 30 years younger than I am and insist that we you know, show up eight hours early and stand in the mosh pit. And I'm like, this is the definition of stupidity. I don't know why anyone would do this. And then, you know, and the whole time you're looking up and, and looking at people in the, in the seats. I'm like, see, they're the smart ones. We're standing here in our little deal. And so I'm like, there's some crowds you don't want. Like, here's a crowd you don't want to be in. I don't know. <laughs> Now, if you have kids, you'll know that these are minions. If you don't, then you're like, that's really weird. It's weird if you have kids, but anyway. (laughs) Crowds are dangerous. In fact, there are hundreds of people who die in crowds every year. The statistic is that once you have seven people in a square yard, it's now dangerous. Now, a square yard, just think about it. It's just a yardstick wide and yardstick deep. 
And when there's seven people, things become dangerous and what they call compressional asphyxia. That means you're being compressed so much that you can't breathe anymore. People die in stadiums. People die in protest in crowds because crowds are dangerous. I'll never uh, forget that when I was a kid, about, about my boy's age, they, uh, Woolco. You remember Woolco? Uh, that was kind of the predecessor of Walmart. And they were having a, a new Woolco open. It was like a, just like a Walmart. And uh, Woolco opened. They were having a doorbuster sell. And my, my dad, who I gained from, you know, my cheapskate jeans from my dad, there was a picnic table that was going to be sold for a dollar. And we were going to get that picnic table. So we showed up early at Wolco Wal- Wal- and, and we stood and we were right in the front. And there was going to, you know, at 9 a.m., they were going to bust open the doors. That's why it was a door buster. And, uh, and so, man, they, you know, people can get vicious over a dollar, uh, item, like a picnic table. And I remember the fishing rod, and I was, I just remember, why are we going for the picnic table? Why don't we go to the fishing rod? Anyway, went for the picnic table. But as soon as those doors opened, it was like a tsunami of people, and I went down. And people didn't care that there was a child. The picnic table, a child. Picnic table, a child. Let's go for the picnic table, obviously. And I got trampled and I was crying and I remember the fear of like these people aren't going to stop. And my mother was yelling. I think she was cussing. I think she was doing something. <laughs> Come on, up, mom and show us. <laughs> In fact, I've got a film. Here she is. No, <laughs> that little Southern belle just cussing like I say. Anyway, I'm kidding. Well, I'm not kidding about the cussing part, but. <laughs> Just oppressive people. You see, crowds can be dangerous. When I think about crowds in our spiritual context in the church culture, oddly enough, they can be very dangerous. And I'll tell you why. You see, crowds give us an illusion. Crowds give us an illusion that, man, this is happening. By the way, pastors like crowds. The more, the merrier. And we're like, oh, a lot of people showed up. I talked to Pastor, and like, oh, a lot of people. And we're always talking about a lot and the numbers and so many people show up and all that. And it can get us going. And yet Christ calls us to a small space for true transformation. You see, we can be under the illusion that as long as we're together, as long as we're in a big room or perhaps a big stadium, with 10,000 people, then, wow, this is it right here. This is the end goal. We're, this is, the crowd is great. I propose to you that the crowd is dangerous. I love the crowd. I love Sunday mornings. Nothing wrong with it. But the message is, this is not the end zone. This only leads us to deeper places, smaller spaces. Christ prayed in many places in the scripture we have what we would call sound bites of his prayers we as a church i think every church uh, embraces a particular scripture or two that says this is our driving uh, force this is our engine these are our spark plugs for us the prayer of christ in john chapter 17 is particularly important to us let me tell you why now if you've been around 360 you'll know that we speak about this prayer but i believe it's significant Jesus prayed a lot. We're told that he frequently went out early in the mornings. We're not given a time frame of that, but my guess is that it wasn't just 15 or 20 minutes praying. 
My guess that Christ woke up early in the morning as we're told and that he went out maybe four or five while it was still dark. And my guess is that he prayed a very, very long time. We're told at times that when he was on the eve of selecting the disciples, he prayed all night long. That's how I kind of get a vibe that he wasn't a short prayer. But unfortunately, these prayers are not recorded in their fullness in the scripture. We often have sound bites like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But in John 17, we have the long, not the longest prayer because we don't know, but the longest recorded prayer of Christ that ought to, first of all, get our attention. Like, wow, we have more words in a prayer than normal. But not only because it's the longest recorded prayer in Scripture is it important, but it's important because in that prayer, Christ prays for himself. God, he says, Father, that now is the time has come. Glorify your son. Now, then he prays for the second part of the prayer. He prays for the disciples that were around him, those that were walking with him. Protect them now because I'm leaving the planet. But the most important part for us is that he, in the third part of the prayer, he prays for those who are going to believe in the future. That means to, that he is praying for the 360 church on December the 7th, 2014. He's praying for St. John's Methodist Church. He's praying for Bayside Community Church. He's praying for churches all over this city, all over this world. And when we, sit, when we look at what he prayed, it, we ought to lean forward and say, wow, what would he be praying for of all the things that he could pray for? What would he be praying for for us? John chapter 17 and verse 20 and 21, we see that these words, Jesus prays to the father. He says, I pray also because he had just prayed for his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through the advancing of the story of the disciples through their message. He's talking about, I'm praying for those in the future that they'll believe in the message that these are guys right around me are going to advance. And he says in verse 21 that they all may be one. He prays in that moment of all things. He prays that we might be one. Now this verse, in my opinion, has been misinterpreted to say we're all one big body of Christ. We extend our hands. We hold our hands and sing Kumbaya and we all get along together. The reason I don't believe that that's true, that's nice, by the way. But it's not what Christ is praying for because he goes on to say, I pray that they may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Christ is saying, look, Father, Abba, Daddy, this thing that we've got going on between two beings, it is incredibly profound. And I'm asking you, Father, that they could experience what that is. I'm exper I pray that they will experience. He, said, he could have prayed for anything. He could have prayed, I pray that they'll be Bible brilliant, that they'll know, they could just know the Bible back and forth. It's great to know the Bible, but that's not what Christ prayed for. He could have prayed, I pray they'll all be preachers and that they could be, express themselves and express the gospel in such a brilliant way that they'll, he could have prayed that. He could have prayed, I pray that they'll, that they'll have miracles and power just, just, just running right through them. He didn't pray that. He said, I pray that they have what we have because it is so profoundly life-giving he says i also pray god that they would they won't just be one amongst themselves but that they also may be one in us so that they will advance the story that the world might believe that you have sent me you see christ understood that his people are sitting in the chairs in the theater of life 
looking at our story, what they're looking for is not a dead religion and a dead book. They're looking for an alive God actively working through us. People who are actively engaged with one another at a level that really brings forth transformation. That is the story that people look at and say, I want that. Because many people don't have it. Now we have, we have settled into this message now at this church for four years. Many of you have heard it. You say, okay, I got it. We grow relationships small. We build our relationships not just in a crowd but in a group. But I'm here to tell you two things today, not just to explain to you once again that this is important. But after four years, here's the discovery that I've made. Number one, you have to fight hard to get there. It doesn't come to you. You must go to it. The second thing is this, that it is worth every ounce of the fight. The lives that are truly transformed, and I understand that, and I say this with great compassion, that in any given church on any given Sunday, there are many different layers of passion that are represented in this room. Many different layers of leaning forward or leaning back. I get that. And we've all been at different levels and different places in our spiritual walk. We understand. But there are those in this church that are leaning forward and not being settled with just the crowd, but they're leaning forward to experience what Christ prayed for. That I might have a relationship or two that's deeper than most others. And the result is stunning when you see it. Like the story we've heard from Sarah Ogden. It didn't happen in a crowd. She began to link up with one individual and that one individual made a huge difference in their life. I spoke to a man this afternoon, uh, after the first service. He said, I'm graduating. Just kind of humbly said, I'm graduating next Sunday. I'm like, really? He said, yeah, back in February 22nd, 2011, just three and a half years ago. He said, I had tracks all up and down my arms. I, I, they took me to the Sally, the Salvation Army. And he said, I, my life was at an all-time low. And he said, now I'm graduating with my bachelor's degree three and a half years later. And now he's a worker there at Salvation. Absolutely. Absolutely. My question to him was this. Who was it? He said, what? Who was it? I said, I know you don't get this in the crowd. Who was it? You know, he said, without thinking, Bob. Now, I know I use the word Bob a lot. <laughs> I'm joking around. Truly, his name is my name. In other words, there was that individual that looked him in the eye. Last week we talked about something, something uh, uh, big happening in a small space. You might remember if you were here last week, the, the disciples crossing over the lake in a storm. Something big happened to happen in that small space this week. To advance the story, I'm going to reverse that coin and say, there are times that something small needs to happen in a big space. You have to find that small relationship for something huge to happen in a big space you see he walks into the salvation army and it wasn't greeted by a crowd he was greeted by bob and it was bob his sponsor who changed his life 
Today we're going to look at a story. We're going to park. If you want a head start to turn in your Bibles, Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at an inspiring story of a nameless woman. This woman, in my opinion, teaches us the fight. She teaches us how to press in toward what is important and exactly what Christ prayed that we would experience. You can't miss the fact that if Christ prayed, man, here's the thing I hope they get, that with everything in us, we should press toward that thing that he's asked us to be. If Christ said, man, I want them to be Bible experts, then we should be spending hours and hours and hours studying, studying, studying. But he said, I'm praying that there'll be one, Father, just like you and I are one. And with that in mind, everything in us should press toward that goal. And I'm telling you, it's a fight. It's a hard fight. And it's worth, you talk about to anybody who's been through it, it's worth every ounce of the fight. In fact, at the end of our time to get together today, I'm going to show you a film, a story of a, of, of a gal here in our church who's all, whose name also is Sarah, who fought. And this story for us uh, is inspiring and teaches us what to fight against. Mark chapter 5, verse 24. A large crowd followed Christ and they pressed around him. Compressional asphyxia. This was not dozens. I don't believe it was hundreds as I'm reading the context of the stories around here. I believe it was thousands. Picture those pictures, those images that we saw at the first of the service. Thousands pressing in on Christ. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now my guess in this story, as I'm reading it, is that no one in that crowd knew this lady or what she had gone through for a dozen years. You know why? Because it's a crowd. It's the illusion of a crowd. We're all pressed around Christ, and yet I'm sitting here. Maybe you're sitting here. Many stories across this room. We're together in a crowd, and yet I bet you there are people in this room that would have no idea what you're carrying. So I brought a little a little illustration with me this morning. I brought in a bowl and some fruit. And this represents us. You're a bunch of fruit. That's a compliment. And so as I was thinking about this story of this lady, I was thinking of us as fruit that we all were crowded. They were all crowded around Christ as we crowd around each other. And we get into this, this bowl, this fruit bowl, and we're all together, and there's some aroma going on, some good, some not so good. Uh, <laughs> and we're all just jammed in here, and there's a little bit of compressional asphyxia happening. And, uh, and I, as I'm looking at this, I, um, I got a caught banana here. It's not, not behaving. And I'm looking at this fruit. I never knew a banana skin shouldn't. Oh, I was tearing the plastic. That's not a banana. And I'm looking at this. I'll be in charge of snacks next week. <laughs> and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, see, this is how we look right now. Beautiful. Many different shades and colors. And we're all in one bowl. 
And see, when we stop like this, we think, oh, man, this is beautiful. We're all together. And I love it, by the way. Don't ever get the idea that, hey, it's not good together. It is great together. It's just not the end because the point is that we can all be together like that crowd and remain unpeeled. You see, the better part's on the inside. But in a crowd, we rarely peel ourselves. And we remain unpeeled in a crowd like that woman who was concealed. The best part of her was concealed. The story was concealed. No one knew what was inside. And yet, she was all together with everybody else. And Christ said, that's beautiful, but I didn't create you. I didn't pray for this. I prayed that you would be unpeeled, that you would be vulnerable, that you'd be transparent, but it rarely happens in this environment. One of the books that I have mentioned a number of times here together is a book by a man named Larry Crabb, a, a, a well-known uh, Christian psychologist who's written many books, and, and his book, The Safest Place on Earth, he writes these indicting words. He says this, we arrange our bodies in a circle, but our souls, the inside of our fruit, that inner person, our souls are sitting in straight back chairs facing away from the others. We all play it safe because none of us feel safe in a group to peel. Not really. And I look at those words and I think, oh, See, we must fight to get to a smaller place, a place where we can unpeel. In fact, our logo, you, most of you know it, but in our vision book, we have a, a page where it has arrows between the logo and between the circles, and they represent Sunday morning and a small group, but that red circle, that tough circle, that one you have to fight for, there's an arrow. And so when I meet people, when I come to jazz night, I come to jazz, I like jazz, I like snacks and all that, but I come to jazz night to put be an arrow to, to someone, and I love saying, hey, hey, here's a guy, and you, oh, you got to meet each other, and then they, then all of a sudden, they're, they're talking, and then you leave, they're still talking, I don't know how that translates on the podcast, but anyway, you get the picture, and it's like, cool, because there's been a convergence of two people, and God says, don't just advance your story, but help others to advance their story, be an instigator, be a, an arrow evangelist, so to speak, because we have to fight to get through there. Now, this woman is teaching us today some of the things that we need to fight against because I've had so many people like, you know, I, I hear you talking about getting close. I hear you talking about the small circle. But then I hear, here's why I don't do it. And I understand it. I understand the challenges. But this woman, this nameless woman in the story inspires us today. Here's a few things. Watch. Go back to Mark chapter 5, verse 25. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. When I see that, here it reminds me of a reason why people say, gosh, I, I can't get close to each other. You know, when I look at that word, been subject, that means I am locked in. I am a servant. I am a slave to this. In a, in a kingdom, someone who is a subject is subservient to the, the, the higher powers. How many times as a pastor have I heard people say, this is the way I am. I can't change. 
In fact, I put on the screen here uh, some of the things I, I hear. I can't change. That's just the way I am. I can't hide it. That's just the way I am. I might as well get oh you might as well get over it because that's just the way I am. That's a little bit more aggressive way. Hey, get over it. I'm going to be this way. Don't try to understand. It's just the way I am. You see, God looks at us, and I believe that God's heart can still be broken. We're told in heaven there are no tears, but that only comes at a certain timeline. And the whole deal, I believe that God, that Christ still weeps. He wept here on earth, and I still believe that he weeps. We're told in the scripture that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And I believe that these words coming from a follower of Christ to say, I can't change, that's just the way I am, absolutely breaks the heart of God. Because God is the one that says, no, I'm. you're here to change. I can transform you through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the, 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 the mixing of other people in your life, the inter, in the fusion of other people in your life in a relationship. I can, you're here to change. Don't ever say to yourself, I'm here to change. And I look at this lady and she could have said, I've been like this 12 years. Forget it. I'm not going to press in toward Christ. I'm not going to fight for this thing. This is just the way I am. I've always been stingy. I've always been private. I've always been uh, 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 loud. I've always been an over-talker. I've always been an under-talker. I've always been a liar. I've always been a poser. I've always been this, whatever that thing is. I'm always in Christ. Oh, I fully know that. But you can press. You can change. But you've got to fight for it. You'll notice that the crowd didn't come to her. She had to press through the crowd. And it was worth every fight. She reminds us today, this inspiring woman, don't ever give in to the fact that you are who you are, that Christ doesn't want to change you or you can't change. And our discipleship track, we call it exchange. We get to a certain point later on that we begin to identify those places where we say, gosh, I feel subject to this. And we call them opportunities for completion. Not the bad stuff. That's like, okay, I got this thing. I've been had it for years and years. And no, they're opportunities for God to say, I want you to be more complete. Thank God that people like Sarah said, that spoke this morning just said, well, my life just stopped right there. No, she goes, no, it can't stop. And she pressed ahead. This woman did. I'll tell you another thing this woman reminds us of in Mark chapter 5 and verse 26. She had suffered a great deal for all these years, under the care of many doctors, and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Have you ever tried to fix something and it gets worse? I'm telling you, it happens to me all the time. That's because I'm a moron with tools. I mean, just <laughs> not too long ago, my wife says, hey, you got, you got to take this, uh, this shelf off uh, above our washing machine. You got, you got to get it down. So it had a, a screw. It was held by screws. So Mr. Brilliant thought, I'll use a screwdriver. You would think that would get the job done. A screw, a screwdriver, right? So I go in. I, I, I'm like, mm-hmm, turning, turning, turning. It's not moving. And so when things don't work for me, I'm like, yeah, see, this is why I don't fix stuff around the house because I, 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 now I don't know what to do. I, I'm, now I'm past my pay grade. I'm like, screw, screwdriver, uh, what do you do? So I, I, number one, I get a little grouchy 
and because uh, I felt like a trapped animal. Now, now what am I going to do? And the second thing I do is use different tools. So I got a hammer. And uh, a hammer is kind of a universal thing when nothing else is work, working. Have you ever noticed that? The screwdriver's not hitting it, so I, I get a hammer. And so I thought, well, here's one way to do it. Just stick the claw, the hammer up, and just pull as hard as you can. And I got the shelf down. Uh, the problem then, I had a big patch uh, place that I had a hole about the size of a half a dollar there. This is when I call friends. I phone friends here in the congregation. I'm like, hey, um, I've made a mess of myself. I've made, made a mess of things here. And uh, my wife's not here. And I'm wondering if you could come in and make me look good. Uh, that would be really awesome. And uh, enough of you love me. There you say, yeah, you kind of come in on like a covert operation cleanup, you know, on all five. <laughs> when I talk to people about growing relationships small, probably the number one thing is this. Yeah, I've done that before. And it didn't turn out well. I got close to people. Man, I got hurt. Ever heard it? Ever said it? You see, I, I pressed in like you're talking about, Steve. But it, you know, just I'm like, oh, it was so awful. Turned out hard. I mean, I, I trusted people. And, and then I started thinking, I'm like, I, that's a pretty legitimate. She's she tried to get help. She pressed toward doctors. She pressed toward people that could help. She pressed toward the experts. And it just got worse. Some people came to me and like, oh, you know, I... I, I, I tried that in 06. When I'm like, 806? No, 2006. Really? Eight years ago, you sidelined yourself because it went sour? Then I started thinking of the bigger picture of the Bible. Just like that Tiananmen Square picture, you know, where you kind of zoom back and you see the whole thing. There are times when you zoom away from the Word and, and you get like, oh, when I survey the wondrous cross. On which the Prince of Glory died. There are shots like that. And I started thinking about how many times God pressed in to humanity. Came to fix it. And things got worse. If I were God, I'm like, that's it. I'm never removing another shelf again. I'm never going into these humans. I'm never going into their midst. Because every time I do, I get burned. I was thinking about the book of Judges. and kind of been hovering there for a couple of years. And just look at this, look at this um, overview very quickly. In Judges chapter 3 and verse 7. Watch, I'll just go through this quickly. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then God, God would send someone help them out like a Moses or whatnot. Just four verses later, five verses later in verse 12. Sometimes it, it only takes five verses for us sometimes. Have you ever noticed that? God, you know, pulls us out and then five verses later in life, we're just right there. Once again, God intentionally puts, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Just 12 in verse 12. In chapter 4, verse 1, and Ehud, the guy God sent to help him out, died. The Israelites once again did evil. In chapter 6 and verse 1, just two chapters later, again, God puts that word again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Just a few chapters later in verse 10, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And he'd come to help them out. He'd enter in. He'd press in. And just again, in verse, just a few verses later, again in verse 13, or chapter 13, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And if you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the New Testament, it's like God comes in and we mess it up. God comes in, messes up. He's pressing in and we break it. Presses in, break it. Presses in, break it. You can read it in almost every single book of the Old Testament. And when we say to God, I'm 
sorry I got burned in 2006. I can't go in. God have you read the book? Every time I go in, I get burned. But I will press, Christ said. Thank God he didn't give up. Thank God he didn't give up before 1982 because I, I would have been in. Thank God he didn't give up on me last week. We can never say I'm out. I can't press because I got burned. John chapter 1 verse 14 after getting burned and burned and burned and burned and burned. Through thousands of years the word Christ became flesh and made his sacred dwelling among us. He pressed. God is the picture. This woman is a vehicle that teaches us, inspires us. She could, she got burned and yet she still pressed. Here's another thing she inspires us to do, to fight. In verse 27 of Mark 5, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched him. Now, I'd like to go back to that earlier photo, that first one. And I just want to give you a visual. Let's say Christ is on the left side of the screen at the bottom, on this side of the bridge. And let's just envision for a second the, this nameless woman all the way to the right top on the other side of the bridge. And just think about how she had to fight against this crowd. The condition that she had of bleeding in that culture meant that she was unclean and that she could not touch anyone and no one could touch her. And she got so much interest. I can't stay the same. Those are the people that experience transformation. Say, I can't stay the same. And I'm going to push through culture, a culture that tells me that this can be addressed in a crowd. You see, in the 21st century, on Facebook and social media, with one click, I can become your friend. I don't know any other word except stupidity. Just because you show me your, a picture of your cat and your meatloaf, we're not friends. And it's probably a picture of your cat eating your meatloaf. That doesn't mean that we're tight, but culture says we call... Why don't we... Couldn't they have called it something other than friends? Because culture says, we're, we're just in a crowd. We're, we're friends, man. Not the kind that Christ prayed for, but we have to fight through the crowd of our culture. Because culture tells us otherwise. I don't know if you knew it or not, but back in the apostles' days, John, Peter, uh, and James, and all those guys, they had social media. You're like, what? Yeah, John writes about it. Watch this. Second John chapter 12. There's only, or, or verse 12. There's only one chapter. Second John chapter, uh, verse 12. He says, I have much to text you. I have much to instant message you. I have much to Facebook you. I have a lot to, to, to leave on your voicemail. I've got a lot to email you. I've got a lot to write you, but I don't want to use pixels. I don't want to use an iPhone. I don't want to use paper and ink, but I instead, I hope to visit you and talk to you face to face. Why? So we can be complete. 
so my joy can be complete. Culture teaches us an incomplete way and gives us the illusion that we can get to where God, Christ, prayed for us to be. See, I'm reading this book, The Safest Place on Earth. I've read it four times. I have more writing in the book than the author put, than Larry Crabb put. And I'm reading this book, and I'm like, gosh, man, I'm reading and reading. He's talking about he's getting down to the, the, what we would call small circle relationships. But it appears that the way he's writing is that you can obtain that in a group. And I love groups, by the way. But that you can get it in a small group. And I thought, I'm going to write Larry Crabb. Now, this guy's an international guy who's all around the world teaching and writing and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, the, the chances of him writing me back are about the same chances that I'll win the Heisman next year. He's probably not going to write me back, but I'll write him. I said, Larry, I've read your book over and over. And I get where you're going. I get the end zone that we've got to get deeper and closer. But it appears to me that you're saying that we can get this in a group. Can and, is that, am I reading it right? Lo and behold, three or four, four months later, I got an email from him. He actually wrote me back. Dear Steve, don't ever write me again. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Explain. An excerpt of what he said to me. For a small group to hit significant depths, that's what Christ prayed for. Father, let them hit a significant depth. One, it is rare. I mean really rare. We can get close in a group. We really can. But it's pretty rare that we unpeel ourselves at that level. We must end the group in order to get to the next level. We can't go straight to it. But he says it's rare. In fact, I'll go as far as to say I've never seen it. Not like my one-to-ones. It's rare. And number two, it requires many years, solid commitment, and a clear focus on knowing each other. He says, I don't believe, however, that the best small group can substitute for a one-on-one time. If he was here, I'd kiss him right in the face. (laughs) I'm like, right on. My next email, Larry, for the sake of Christ, Put that in your next book. Because we can't give the, the readers the illusion that we can reach that significant depth right here. You must say, oh, in order to get there, though, you got to tell me how. In order to tell you how, you got to get, you got to one off. That's what Christ did. That's what he prayed for. Finally, here's what this lady teaches us. Change for human beings seems huge, doesn't it? Especially when you, we know deep down that we feel subject to who we are. We feel enslaved. We feel trapped. And therefore we feel, are you ready? Very private with our stuff. I feel very safe in a big group. I'm a banana. I can, I can remain unpeeled and I can still get close to you as an orange and say, aren't you glad to see me? Sorry, that was just really bad. Really bad. People began to throw fruit. 
But see, I can nestle up to you as an unpeeled banana next to you as an orange. And man, it, we, we call it a day. Because my, the inside of my peel, I want to keep it private because that's who Adam taught us to be, to hide behind the bush, to hide behind the peel. And if I leave it right there, I believe with all my heart, we break Christ's heart. It's like, that's not what I prayed for. And it seems so enormous, so massive, that this lady gives us one final um, challenge and, and solution. And I believe it's this. And it comes in the form of a Chinese proverb. A journey that she took of a thousand miles begins with one small step. You see, when I read her story in, in Mark 5, verse 27, when she heard about Christ, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touches close because she thought it started with just a little thought. Well, maybe me. Maybe someone. Maybe if I just get close enough to someone. And she said, just because she thought, if I just, I find that people think too enormous, too quick. That's our generation. That's our culture. Hey, you can become a millionaire by next Thursday. No, it doesn't happen that way. You can have a, a, a profound change in your life and you just go through these three classes that we offer on Wednesday nights. Really? You can just come to church and hear a madman scream like I'm doing up here and hold a fruit ball and your life will be changed. It doesn't work that way. It takes time. That's why we said in our discipleship, take you about a year and a half. What? Yeah. Christ spent three and a half. We did a discount version. Takes time. And sometimes we think, oh, it's so enormous. And Christ would say, just one step. Maybe it's one jazz night. Maybe it's going to the info desk. Maybe it's stepping into a small group. I know it's scary for people. People have been around church like, okay, I'll get in a small group. For some people, you've got to recognize, that's a big deal. Scary, man. What do they do when you get there? Do they burn stuff? Do they brand you, tattoo you, shave your head? I mean, what, what goes on in those things? Am I going to have to show up and say, okay, here's what I did when I was 11, and then here's what I did when I was 11 and a half? No, it doesn't. No, none of that. But I understand the fear. And this lady says, just take a step. Take one step, which will lead to another step, which will lead to another step. We must. We must press if we're going to accomplish what Christ Wants us to be. This leads us to the story. Of Sarah Benham. And Sarah will tell her own story. I don't even need to set it up. Let's take a watch. I had joined 360. With my own thought in mind of church. Just coming on Sundays. And leaving right afterward. <laughs> Not getting to know anybody. Well, Pastor Steve was just talking every week about the vision and exchange and the map. And it just made me start thinking like, okay, it's not just about Sunday service. It's about building community with people. So my act group leader at the time mentioned in act group that they needed help with the church serving. I joined the link and it wasn't natural for me to join it just because I came up kind of from a negative family. I used to be shy, um, didn't smile a lot, not sure why, but I just didn't. 
maybe insecurities. When I joined the link, it was still challenging for me to uh, be smiley, outgoing, happy, um, but I grew through that. It was a growth process. Being pushed out of my comfort zone was tough, but it was for the better. Um, it made me have a different perspective on why I was at church. It was for the people. That's when change started happening for us, where noticeably, where I saw Sarah getting close with people that she normally wouldn't be getting close with. She's a very quiet person, uh, very to herself. If there was a large crowd, Sarah would avoid it. She would walk in the other way or walk around it, take different avenues to avoid a large group or even just awkward silence or awkward encounters with people. It's almost surreal seeing Sarah greeting people she doesn't know, uh, smiling, and it's not a fake smile, it's a genuine smile, which I wouldn't expect that to happen. I mean, the woman I married would be very closed door, uh, keep to myself, I don't wanna grow with anyone, and seeing her jump out, it's, it's crazy. It really is crazy, like, I'm not just, cause camera's on me, it's insane that she's, <laughs> I don't know. Basically, we both committed to just being moldable and not just for ourselves, but I had to allow God to mold Sarah into the woman that she needed to be on her own, not just me telling her she needs to be molded in a certain way. And that was huge, that was, that's when God really took her and uh, women in the church uh, that been speaking into her finally had a voice to talk to her and get her to open uh, up doors that were, have always been closed off. I met up with a leader from the church to be discipled and she had asked me at that time, what about leadership? And I never thought about leadership. Not me, I'm not ready. I don't know anything about it. Uh, and then she coached me and we went through and um, she decided maybe I should apprentice under another act group. And I did that for the last summer, this past summer with Caroline Chapman, the bridge group. And I learned a lot. I saw a catalyst um, go through ups and downs and I learned from Caroline that it takes intentionality and effort to make real relationships. I knew that I had to be coachable, vulnerable, willing, um, just ready to do the hard things and get through it with God's help. <laughs> True community from this church has grown me. It's opened my eyes to a whole other world, a new perspective of God's people. After apprenticing in Caroline's group, I met back up with leadership and we both felt it was I was ready to start my own act group and the adventure started.
what a smile. What a smile. What a transformation. I saw that movie, you know, I'm a crybaby. I sat in my office and cried for 15 minutes. I thought I was having a nervous breakdown or something. <laughs> Let me tell you why I cry. I've been at this for many, many years. And the church culture, even under my leading for many years, teaches us this is good enough. You just stay right here and get close to one another. And it's proven that it's not. It can't get us to this point of transforming a person that's completely peeled and private to being open in front of others and transparent. And when I see that, it's evidence that God is still at work and the story is advanced. And to see two people, two bananas, say, hey, you know what? Let's get out of the crowd and let's come together. And then slowly by just a little bit, let's start to unpeel before one another. And see right there, starts to smell good. And then... Mmm. <laughs> it is delicious. And I wonder if Christ would say today when he sees that, now that's delicious. That's what I'm praying for. That's what we press for. The crowd is not going to come to you. You have to fight. It's a crowd of many layers. But it is worth every single ounce. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God. For a story from a nameless girl, a nameless woman, that has stood the test of time, that has advanced the story. Today, God, we're thankful for two stories that have names. They happen to both be Sarah this morning. For not a name in a book, a Bible, but a name in our midst, a person, two people in our midst amongst others who were willing to press through that argument that each of us has with ourself, that this is the way I am and I'll always be that. Thank you, God, for the inspiration of, of, of those like these two Sarahs who are, and this woman in this story who have pressed through that barrier and said, even though I've been this way for years, I'm pressing to change. God, thank you for those who press, for this woman who press, who inspires us to press, that even though we've been burned, disappointed, deflated in previous experiences and attempts to grow relationships small, God, we're reminded today of you, God, that you pressed into the crowd of humanity over and over and over and we must have grieved you and disappointed you and broke your heart over and over. 
And yet the word became flesh once again and made his dwelling with us. You teach us, God, that we can't get stopped when we get hurt. That we must press through the crowd. God, you teach us today that we can't put our ear to the ground of culture who teaches us that we can just be together and and click on a button that says friends and call ourselves that. Even the culture of our church, which is group-oriented, and say that's what will get us there, God. Today we are taught and inspired to press through the compressional asphyxia of culture. And Father, today you remind us that even though this challenge is absolutely massive, that it often begins with one small thought, one small step. So I pray, God, today. I pray for those who are sitting in this room that without a shadow of a doubt, they know it's them, that they're not pressing And it seems so overwhelming. It seems so scary. Perhaps they've been burned. Perhaps they've convinced themselves they can never change. Whatever that hurdle is for them today, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit fused with your word, that you will teach them and then convince them, God, otherwise. That you are an agent of change and you've used us as human beings to be agents of change. And I pray, Father, today that you would do a work here for those who have been so uh, so stopped in their journey and help us, God, not to settle for the fruit bowl. Help us, God, to not settle for the crowd. Help us not to settle for the group. Help us not to settle for C minus or B plus even, but to press in toward a relationship or two that you would say, yes, that is the intimacy that I intended for you to have so that the world may believe and see true change. God, I pray for those, we pray together for those who have not yet enveloped Christ and, and, and embraced Christ. Transformation for them has absolutely no chance not at, that, not at a spiritual depth without you. So we pray together, God, that you would bring closer to you those who have not embraced Christ so that you would ignite in them a new life and that they could experience what, you, what Christ prayed for, that they may be in, in you, God, so that, that true change could take place. Father, thank you for the press in your word today. And I pray, God, that we'll surrender as we sung earlier our wills to yours. And help us, God, not to stand at the peripheral of the crowd, but with everything we have to press in. We pray it for the work of Christ to advance the story in his name. Amen.